Hey, this episode of the Adventist Millennial Podcast is sponsored by The Haystack. The Haystack is a voice for young adults in the Seventh-day Adventist Church that produces articles, music reviews, videos, and more. What's the and more? Well, you'll have to go to their website to find out. Thehaystack.org. The Haystack. Life. Culture. Theology. Ha! We're back! Welcome back to Car Talk. (laughs) Just kidding, this isn't Car Talk, you guys. I know you got really worried for a second because you thought you downloaded the wrong show, but you can breathe easy now because it's just me, your favorite non-car talking podcast host. So, how are we going to enrage people today? Um, I got some scathing reviews for my last episode, unsurprisingly, um, so in the interest of consistency, I'm going to double down and keep upsetting people. (laughs) Gotta keep up my controversial reputation after all. Actually, no, it's not gonna be that controversial. Hopefully, maybe, we'll see. Um, I had a conversation with some of my fellow Adventist podcasting buddies, uh, if you don't listen to their podcasts, you should, uh, about Patreon and the potential support funding that's out there in the Adventist world, and it got me thinking about what drives people to jump on a bandwagon, like, for example, supporting a podcast. Uh, so we're gonna talk about my thoughts on that, then we are going to talk about what actually takes blind faith, traditional Adventist interpretations of judgment, or kook fringe idea that literally everyone in the church will recoil at. So join me! Okay, like I said, I was talking with my podcast friends um, about Patreon, which, shout out to all of you guys who were in the argument, I mean the conversation. Um, We were speculating that for those podcasters who have a Patreon account, which, in case you didn't know, Patreon is a service that allows creators to receive financial support from patrons who appreciate their work. So, like, artists, musicians, podcasters, YouTubers, etc. Um, well, anyway, we were just speculating whether the support potential for such a niche thing as Adventist podcasts is a zero-sum game. Like, in other words, are there only so many dollars on the table to be given, and the more people who are competing for those dollars, uh, the fewer everyone can potentially get. So that got me thinking, like, why are people moved to support things? To to part with hard-earned money in solidarity with something. Um, what drives people to do that? Are we just not hitting the right mark on what's valuable to people if we're not garnering support? Or is there really a limited amount of generosity <laughs> within Adventism? However grateful people are for what we're providing, they just aren't going to give because, well, they're not going to give. Um, And I just wanted to clarify that the discussion is not about getting support for, like, money or fame or whatever. Money is a a metric of support, but really the, the reach of ideas hinges on the number of people who hear them, obviously. So that's where audience size is important. And the financial support increases capacity to do things more and better. Um, it's not about getting rich. Well, at least for me, it's not. Maybe for my other podcasting buds it is. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, but the idea of monetary affirmation, I guess you could call it, um, I think applies in church too. Like, if you saw my video about tithe last week, why do so few people actually give financially? Um, what's stopping them? Why aren't they compelled to do it? And I think that the tithe question is kind of in the same vein as this, this question here about independently supporting 
podcasters just because people want to. Um, okay, so this is going to seem like a non sequitur, but hear me out. Uh, did any of you watch one of the documentaries about the fire festival <laughs> there's one on hulu there's a different one on netflix and then of course there's the internet historian youtube channel <laughs> that did a video about it like a year ago which frankly i think is the best one um i watched the hulu one but but i assume it's better than the netflix one too anyway um if you haven't seen it it's basically chronicling a huge music festival debacle this young guy um billy mcfarland pretty much grifted his way into convincing the whole world that he was launching the next big music festival think woodstock coachella burning man etc it was going to be in the bahamas they were going to be living like kings, drinking, partying, jamming out to awesome music, you name it. This was going to be the festival of a lifetime. Uh, the only problem was it was a complete flop. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't have enough time to pull off such a huge event. He didn't have any actual musical guests lined up. Um, he just promoted them. He didn't have accommodations for the attendees at this festival that was supposed to be the lap of luxury Bahamas. <laughs> Um, basically all he had was viral marketing and hype, kind of like TanaCon, to those of you who are laughing with me right now. Um, but so everyone who got to the island on the day of this supposed festival was disappointed because it was literally just a few FEMA disaster tents in a Sandals Resort parking lot and stray mattresses strewn everywhere and literally nothing was set up and there was no actual festival. <laughs> but up until the bitter end, he managed to perpetuate the image that it was going to be the most epic thing ever. And he got investors to buy in millions. He got Ja Rule, the rapper, to buy in as one of the faces of this thing. He got advertising agencies to buy in and market it for him. And by the time everyone realized it was not going to happen, it was too late and they were already sunk. Apparently, he was just, like, really good at pitching himself and inspiring people and getting them on board with what he wanted to do. He was, like, one of those people who felt so sure that he was someone amazing <laughs> that everyone else thought he must be someone amazing and jumped on board, which segues into another podcast that I've started listening to called The Dropout about Elizabeth Holmes. Um, these are the things I do in my free time. <laughs> Uh, have you guys heard about Theranos? I had, like, a vague idea about it. I'm sure I heard about it when it was happening, but I didn't really pay much attention to it at the time. Well, Elizabeth Holmes was a dropout from Stanford. She dropped out at 19 years old to create a biotech company. Supposedly, she was going to uh, invent pretty much, it was like a blood sugar testing thing thing, pinprick thing, that would do all types of blood work, and instead of having to get a bunch of blood drawn and sent to the lab, you just have a pinprick. The only problem with that was she was 19 and had no education, no medical or tech background. She didn't know anything and it wasn't going to work. It was impossible. But she was convinced she was going to be the next Steve Jobs, so she managed to get tons of super big investors, like big investors, millions and millions of dollars. And she even poached, like, some important Apple employees, um, but the device didn't work, and apparently it never worked. <laughs> And now, in hindsight, after the company has crumbled, everyone is wondering, like, how did this farce even get carried off in the first place? But the business was running 
and valued at billions of dollars for, like, more than 10 years, um, <laughs> despite it being based on nothing. From all of the various YouTube videos that I watched about it and the podcast that I'm listening to about it, um, it sounds like she was another person with magnetism and charm and was able to get people to buy into her because they were drawn to her, not because what she was proposing actually had merit. I mean, good grief, she had a retail deal with Walgreens for a product that didn't even work, and her company was value had valuation of more than Spotify and Uber at one point. Um, like, how the heck does that happen? Uh, so, it got me thinking about the whole, like, influencer culture we have today, especially with social media, where any schmuck on Instagram can be an influencer if enough people watch them, and they don't have to be doing anything or saying anything valuable, they just have to be there and have clout. And, I don't know, maybe it's just sour grapes because I've never had clout or magnetism or charisma, but I was wondering if we're all just kidding ourselves thinking that that's what we need, a brand. Like, even if we're doing it unintentionally, are my podcaster friends and I chasing, like, the personal brand, the influencer ability, without making the connection that we don't actually want people to get on the bandwagon because they're drawn to us, but because we're creating and saying things that are actually providing value to people's lives. Like, would a spectacle be a more apt word than influencer? Um, and do we want to be spectacles, essentially? Like the Paris Hiltons and the Kardashians and the Kylie Jenners of the world. Like, Jesus actually made people walk away feeling like their lives were better for having come in contact with him. Jordan Peterson, whatever you think of his ideas, has sprung to massive influence because he's helping people change their attitudes and change their habits. I mean, even look at lizard robot Mark Zuckerberg drinking a glass of water. He has literally no magnetism or charm whatsoever, but he did actually change the landscape of how we interact with each other in a modern world. And as my friends and I were discussing whether there's even any Adventist support out there to be gotten, I was thinking like, yes, there has to be. We must just be doing the wrong thing to inspire that support. Neither having magnetism nor value, apparently. <laughs> um, one of my favorite ministries, Common Reason Ministries, shout out to them, um, is pulling way more support than any of my podcaster friends could dream of, and Dr. Jennings, who runs it, doesn't even make an ask ever, which is what most ministries do all the time. I know this because I work for one, and we do it all the time. Um, but Dr. Jennings, who is awesome, by the way, and no shade whatsoever to him at all, but let's not pretend that he's coasting on personal magnetism like Elizabeth Holmes or Kendall Jenner or Obama. He's providing something that people want, ideas that actually have value in their lives, and people appreciate that and support because they feel inspired to. I'm not trying to make some kind of proclamation here about personal influence over perceived value or anything like that. I'm asking you guys, what do you think? Is providing value different than building an influential brand? And can you do one and not the other? Or is there a balance of both that can be struck? Like, there are people who, as much as we repulsive introverts don't like to admit it, 
There are people who naturally connect with other people and draw them in. Is that always a bad thing? Like, is there a place for hype and inspiration and charisma to increase the reach of already valuable ideas? And if there is, how do you do both without corrupting one or the other? Like, when does charm become manipulation instead of inspiration? That's my question. So I'm asking you guys because I don't know. Like, tell me what you think. I've been considering it and wondering what the answer is. Um, so send me your opinions. What do you think about this value versus personal brand, I guess you could say? Email me at admissmillennial at gmail.com or message me on Facebook or Instagram, and I will be waiting with bated breath to find out. I think it's going to break down like this. Extroverts see the value in personal magnetism, and introverts see the value in good ideas. Okay, we'll see. Let me know what you think. Our next topic is another thing we are kidding ourselves about. Um, okay, so, do you know what takes real blind faith? The idea that God is going to punish everyone who doesn't obey him in retribution for their sins. So, I've talked about this before, but it's worth revisiting because I was thinking about it more today and I realized that the indications that we have for a vindictive God require more assumptions than the prospect that God is actually as loving as Jesus portrays him to be. You have to make more leaps to get to God will smite everyone he doesn't like than to take Jesus at his word and believe that he literally loves us until we won't let him anymore. Uh, I know, I know, you're having uh, these adverse reactions because, oh no, that's blasphemy and it tears down the whole foundation of why Adventists think we have to do the things we have to do. We don't like to believe we follow rules out of fear, but that's like saying, even though you're holding a switch over my rear end, mom, I'm cleaning my room because I want to, not because you said... Yeah, sure, that's believable. Plus, the whole idea runs contrary to what Jesus showed us about who he is and who God is. First of all, he came and lived on the earth and loved people, cared for them, was kind to them. He didn't go around punishing people all the time for their sins. Like, the most severe thing he ever did was knock over a few tables and whip a few people that, frankly had it coming. I mean, we all need to dole out a good cord whipping every now and then, am I right? Like, okay, but Jesus spent way more time re reassuring people that he didn't want to hurt them than setting them straight with an iron fist. He didn't condemn the demoniacs. He healed them and set them free. He didn't condemn the lepers. He didn't condemn the throngs of people who followed him around all the time, probably sinning. He didn't condemn the children that bothered him, according to the disciples. He didn't even condemn people who actually did egregious stuff. He didn't condemn the woman at the well for being a thought. Uh, Mary Magdalene he didn't condemn also for being a thought. He didn't even do anything to Judas who literally sold him down the river. Judas met his own demise. Um, Jesus didn't do anything to get him back for his sins. And whenever he came in contact with sinners, he was like, well, I don't condemn you, just don't do that anymore. And another thing is that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, was that just a lie? He spent a lifetime carefully constructing this image of who he was. He was thoughtful, patient, long-suffering, 
But he just went to all that trouble, of course, of living a perfect life for kicks, right? I mean, just to chuckle when we all get ours for disobeying later on. He said, I don't condemn you, but, like, his fingers were crossed behind his back the whole time, right? Like, really, was Jesus' refusal to judge Mary Magdalene just to lead everyone down the garden path to trick us into thinking that there's value in unconditional love and forgiveness, only to yank the rug out from under us when we get to the end of time and God throws bolts of fire at us while we dodge and scream for living a sinful life in a sinful world that we didn't ask to live in, in a controversy that we didn't ask to be a part of, with a fallen nature that we didn't ask for. So, so God is supposed to be like, here, I'll put you as a weak baby in an unmanageable circumstance that you didn't voluntarily choose, and you don't know what the heck is going on or what the implications are, but if you don't manage to do everything exactly right, like, kaboom! Because that's consistent with everything Jesus told us about who God is. <laughs> And by the way, if Jesus was a model for the perfect life, are we to then conclude that God's wrath and vengeance makes him imperfect? Because those weren't anywhere in the perfect life Jesus modeled. Jesus came specifically to reveal his father's character to us. Why, if God is really as mean as we think he is, didn't Jesus show any of that when he was on earth? He didn't do anything for justice on this earth. He didn't give a single person what they deserved. So why do we think he's just waiting for God to do it later on? If we're really being intellectually honest, we have to know that it doesn't sound right. It doesn't make sense. Vengeful God doesn't rest easy on a properly working conscience. But then, of course, I know you're probably asking, why do we draw these huge distinctions between God in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New? Because God did some pretty wrathful stuff back when you touched the ark and died and crap. So then, is God just going to overrule Jesus at the end and do all his punishing despite everything? And is Jesus going to be like, oops, sorry guys, I meant to warn you, but it was easier to be the good cop and prescribe love? Or is there something that we're missing about why God does the things he does? I mean, that's never happened before, has it? No. People misunderstand God all the time. Take the disciples, for example. All they did was misunderstand Jesus, and they were the Adventists of their time, you know what I mean? Um, what if the disciples mistaking the idea that Jesus had come to overthrow the government and implement his own justice is foreshadowing of a similar misunderstanding of God at the end? They thought Jesus was going to conquer, but he was really going to self-sacrifice and they were disappointed because they wanted retribution for their own selfish satisfaction. But like, we love parallels. We love Joseph as a parallel for Jesus. We love the prodigal son as a parallel for redemption. We love the parallel of Abraham and Isaac for the cross. Is it so far afield for the disciples misunderstanding Jesus' mission on earth to be a parallel for us misunderstanding God's intentions towards sinners? I mean, seriously, when does God execute punishment on people? In God's dealing with Job, Satan was the inflictor. In God's dealing with Satan, 
He let him terrorize creation and play out the great controversy. He didn't punish him. Adventists love to believe that truth has been gradually revealed over time and our understanding of God collectively has matured over time. We pride ourselves in having moved from the Judaic understanding to Christianity, to the Reformation, then to Adventism. And at least superficially, we say that God deals with us on our own level in a way that we can understand. And we think that we've understood more truth over time. But no, it's just inconceivable that God would have dealt differently in ancient times to match up with humanity's understanding and maturity level. That's inconceivable. We're not willing to say that the reason Jesus didn't do those vengeful things it wasn't because he's different than God and his motivations, but that he was correcting our understanding so that he could evolve his own actions toward adultish population. No, that can't be the answer. Um, but think of it as baby humanity getting yelled at for not touching the stove versus a teenaged humanity who realizes why they shouldn't touch the stove instead of just reacting to being yelled, don't touch the stove. There's a difference in the way that you deal with people when they have a different understanding level. My suspicion is that we've so misunderstood God that we're going to be as surprised as the disciples were when we find out our petty sense of justice isn't God's sense of justice, and that we're imposing a sophomoric character on him because at one time he dealt with humanity on its own sophomoric level, therefore God is also on that level. Vengeful God is counter to everything we understand as being good and righteous and loving in this world. I mean, we all recognize that retribution is abusive, if Sheila Jackson Lee does it to a sexual assault survivor in the nonprofit that she chairs. But when God does it, well, that's justice. It's beautiful. It's his right to be abusive because God is God. No more questions, please. Psych, we have more questions. What evidence do we have that God is going to punish us? That the Bible states will be punished? Well, this goes back to what I was saying about communicating at someone's maturity level. A three-year-old child hears, you better not use the scissors on your sister's hair or so help me I'll use the scissors on you. <laughs> but an observing adult hears that and understands the real meaning of it. It's not nice to cut your infant sibling's hair down to the scalp, John. Not that the parent is just wanting a chance to cut the three-year-old. No, that's not the meaning. If through history we've matured in our understanding, why hasn't God changed his behavior toward us to match that understanding? Would that not account for the seeming discrepancy in how God has acted versus how Jesus has acted? Isn't it more logical that we're just misconstruing what the entirety of scripture is trying to tell us than that God literally wants to kill us? I mean, look, we Adventists have no problem taking interpretive liberty to say that despite the Bible saying the smoke of sinner's torment will ascend forever and ever, uh, we're fine saying that that's symbolic. We're fine saying that the rich man and Lazarus is symbolic. We're fine saying God won't burn us forever. He'll just burn us as much as we deserve, and that's admirable. But we're not fine saying God's scary acts and scary language is indicative of our understanding level, not his own desires. No, that one's just too far. We love to claim in Christianity that we're so little and God is so infinite that we can never understand him. 
But to say that he doesn't actually want to vengefully kill his own creations, well, that's one thing that we do understand. That's one thing that we're big enough to comprehend, despite God being incomprehensible on all other accounts. In the end of John 12, Jesus says what I think he wanted us to understand. Um, and I'm going to read this from a paraphrase called The Remedy. It says, As for the person who hears my words and sees all the truth I have revealed but does not apply it to their life, I do not speak against them. I do not come into the world to condemn it, but to bring the only remedy to sin and selfishness in order to heal and save the world. There is an accounting, a reckoning, a final conclusion for the one who does not value the principles and methods I have revealed. The reality of their own condition will condemn them in the last day. Because they rejected me, the only remedy, their infected selfish state is fatal, and the truth of their unhealed terminal condition will be their judge. I do not speak words to promote myself, but spoke only the truth necessary to reveal the Father who sent me. I know that his methods and principles are the basis of life, and they result in eternal life. So whatever I say is exactly what the Father would say if he were here, because he has told me the exact truth to reveal. Jesus tried to tell us over and over again what he meant, and we have constantly misunderstood it. How many times does God not have to condemn us for us to believe that he doesn't want to condemn us? Everything that Jesus did on earth counteracted the idea that God is just waiting to crush us if we don't fall into line. It takes a bigger leap of faith, I think, to reimpose a vindictive God after Jesus has so meticulously deconstructed that idea of God. Now, if you're any kind of Adventist, you don't like this. You don't like it one bit. Um, that's expected. But work on it in your mind. Really grapple with it and face God and see if what you know about him is enhanced with the knowledge that one wrong move and you're vaporized. Then take that beautiful concept and go apply for a job in Sheila Jackson Lee's office. <laughs> Let me know what you guys think. I've appreciated all of the people who have reached out and shared their thoughts. It's always helpful. Um, I've gotten pushback for sure. I've gotten appreciation. Um, and I like all of it. I just want to hear from you. So drop me a line. Um, and also leave me a review on iTunes if you want. Okay, bye!